We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Finishing off our build from the one-on-one in the FFPC main event. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. And you can find all of his fantastic work over at Rotoviz. He just recently dropped an entire list of every player, every round, perfectly detailed for you for your drafts as priority what uh, options draftable at cost options draftable when they fall options emergency options if you don't have any of the above and then the ones that didn't get a tag sean being such a nice guy that's his way of telling you probably not drafting that guy we're jumping back in here into our build at the 101 it was a non-elite tight end build we waited late to address the position but we're drafting from the 101 here. We started with Christian McCaffrey. We took five straight receivers. We wound up with four rookie receivers and eight receivers through 11 rounds. Waited at the tight end position. We'll be finishing up this exciting build on this episode, then talking through the draft, some of the other strategies we really liked in this league, some of the picks that we weren't as big of fans of. A fun debate between Chris Godwin and Rashad Bateman, who we took on the first show, all in this second episode of our draft from the 101. Let's join in progress. AJ Hamler goes, Brevin Jordan goes. Funny, I just put both those guys in the queue. Sean, you have some great names in the queue, but I threw them in as guys to consider here at the 14-15 turn. We are already very deep at receiver, but KJ Hamler at this price just kind of would have been silly. Brevin, although we do have Jerry Judy, so maybe not the right play here. Brevin Jordan a guy that I like going into year two, good uh, target spot run profile and a limited sample last year, good production profile in college, not a lot of competition for targets. I think he's a reasonable guy to add with an upside bet like a Gerald Everett. Noah Fant also went off in this round. I know you had him in the queue. He would have been a really nice second tight end to add. So we get into the the Johnu Smith, Trey McBride range that, that you and I have talked about all offseason. You've at points has said that you've given up all pretense and are taking Trey McBride in every single draft. I've obviously been talking very 
excitedly about Janu for a long time, and, and I know you're very much in on that as well. Those are two nice options. I did just get Janu in like the 19th last night. I don't know that we have to go there this turn necessarily. 22 tight ends already off the board, but names like Evan Ingram, Austin Hooper still there who tend to go. Robert Tunyon still there. Sean, we're back up. You also have Justin Fields in the in the queue and a lot of running backs. And I'm pretty interested in some of these running backs. I'm definitely willing to go with one of these tight ends to really shore this up. We're at the point in the draft where you can kind of throw out ADP and get your guys. What are you thinking? We are. I wanted to know what you thought about adding that second QB after we had that discussion, taking a Justin Fields. Obviously, we could just try and get a Marcus Mariota later and play off the idea that maybe he does hold that position longer than people are expecting. Colin and I debated Trey McBride in round 20 yesterday, and I think that probably we can push him one more through. If we want Amir Abdullah, who could be James White, this is probably the spot to take him. Evan Ingram, Austin Hooper. Curtis loves Austin Hooper. I give him a hard time about that, but this is actually not a bad price at all to take him if we think that we want just some targets there. Let's wait on tight end. Fields is fine if you want to go Fields. I, I have not taken him yet, and you've been increasingly excited, and I obviously love the player, so I, I think that's a a fun one and i say obviously for anyone who listened last year during the season it wasn't fun during the season it wasn't but i couldn't stop talking about him and defending him um let's go with a running back here there's a lot of tight end options if hooper or ingram were to come back sure uh john who trey mcbride a lot of ways to play that but let's get our best running back here abdullah is that what you're thinking i think it's abdullah we we do have some shot at some later guys and and that's one of the reasons why i'd be okay with the tight end because i do want I mean, not that we have to have them. It's not going to be heartbreaking if we miss. But Samaj P. Ryan, Ronald Jones, two guys I would love to stash in addition to potentially getting Ty Chandler at the end. But Abdullah does seem like just such a a source of cheap points. Yeah, we have Penny, Mostert, McCaffrey. A lot of ways those could you know those could be injuries for a few weeks where we might like to add in Abdullah in this build. I think. Oh, I thought those were the three healthiest guys in the NFL. Not um, not not the running back build for the faint of heart or, or the people that get too worried about predicting running back injuries. Clearly, you can tell that, that Sean and I don't care so much about predicting the injuries. It's pretty tough to do. Every running back has injury concerns. And for the most part, you're, you're just shooting for upside, and those guys have reasons to like them. It doesn't mean you take every injury-prone back, but – if the, if the back also has some legitimate upside cases, and all of them appear to be extremely healthy now. No concerns whatsoever. Uh, I guess a little stuff with Penny this offseason, but the healthier one out of him and Walker by a long shot right now, I think most are sounds you, – you've been saying he's putting up elite speed times at every practice, out you know, out racing Tyreek Hill essentially to be their fastest player and, and Jalen Waddell. And yeah, that was, the, that was at least – that was at least – the reporting for the first couple of weeks there. And we definitely haven't heard about anything about him slowing down. So yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Waddle too. I mean, those, if you can beat those two guys, Ben, then you're not slow. I mean, this is more just social media stuff. And obviously I don't see the vast majority of it, but when you go in and check out and see what Jalen Waddle is doing, what Raheem Mostert is doing. And all the talk is basically that Raheem Mostert wants to race all the guys who got faster Madden times than he did. He's confident he can beat everybody in the NFL. I love it. So we push tight end. We only have the one. Sean, we only have three more non-kicker defense picks. You just mentioned three running backs I'd love to add into this build. 
I had thrown Jalen Warren as well on the back. It looks like he might be Najee Harris's handcuff. I think Warren and Samaje Pirine at this point are guys that on almost every build I like to tack on because I think they're fairly clear handcuffs at this point to top three round high volume running backs that we're not really playing a lot of in our own drafts. And it's more just the anti-fragile idea where not only, you know, it when unfortunate running back injuries happen, which we always say we're, we're not rooting for, but they do happen. And we have to talk about it when they do happen. It hurts the team that drafted them. Obviously you want to be in a position as well from a strategy perspective, again, not, not, not ignoring the human element, but just from a strategy perspective to, to have the, the player that then gains a lot of value as a result, which only really happens at running back. To me, Warren and Pirine look like two of the best widely available late handcuffs you can grab across the league. Fairly straightforward in both regards. Warren's offense not quite as good. Pirine's is the type of offense that can elevate a player. That's one of the reasons we're really excited about Rashad White, along with his great profile and everything, is the Tampa Bay offense can elevate running back scoring. So Pirine has been just a real straightforward one for me, Sean. I, I really liked that call. We've talked a lot about Ronald Jones being a guy that, like, let's take a peek for a couple of weeks and see if he's active and maybe get some carries and looks like their best runner. I don't know why he didn't gain any rounds of value because there is still an upside case. Now, he made the team. Everyone dropped him way, way, way down in drafts because he was going to get cut, and then he made the team, and now everyone's certain, I don't know, he's going to get deactivated every week. Well, what would be your breakdown and obviously this is just you know kind of making stuff up, but give me a percentage for all four of those guys to be the highest fantasy scorer for the year, all four of those Chiefs backs. Uh, I mean, I, I think you would, from a projection standpoint, have to put CEH first. So maybe he's like, you know, 40% or 50%. I, I For some people, it's a lot higher than that. I, I'm not a huge believer in the talent and, and concerned that he's going to look like he's looked throughout his career. And I, there's reason to be concerned about that. You know, we can talk about how good the offense is and that's going to elevate him, but we've been talking about that since his rookie year and he hasn't really held up from a physical standpoint to big workloads either. So it's tough to see a lot of paths for CH to be really, really good, but he's going to get work and for him to be the highest score in a split backfield is, is fairly possible. So maybe it's more like 50%. Pacheco, I see the athleticism stuff, but man, I'm, I'm concerned about the lack of production in college. I'm concerned about the lack of production in the preseason when he was actually in games. He, you know, when we talked about it early in the offseason, you pointed out to me that these are the types of guys, really great athletes that look good early in camp when the pads aren't on because they're super fast and no one can hit. And it's just obviously they're going to flash. They're big, they're fast, all of those things. Every time we saw him then as pads came on and in the games, not necessarily looking like somebody who reads holes particularly well, it's probably what shows up in the, in the college data. So, I mean, I, I can see it for him, but basically I would say that him and Rojo and, and Jarek McKinnon are all pretty similar after that. So maybe we'll say, you know, 40%, 2020 20, 20 or something, but Pacheco, you got to pay a lot higher of a price. I still think McKinnon and Rojo are the highest upside outcomes as well. Cause if they do hit, I think those are the guys that can be from a talent perspective not just a top scorer in their backfield, but really, really good. Rojo would would be doing it mostly through running. If he can be a really efficient runner at a high volume, I and mean, we've seen it at, for stretches in Tampa, he was very good. Jarek McKinnon, you go look at what he did in the playoffs. If they're very pass-heavy and he's kind of their main guy and catching a lot of balls on swing passes, he could put up 20-point games quick with just high-value touches. 
what I want to see from that backfield is who's inactive in week one. I think the worst case scenario, if you're playing a lot of McKinnon and Rojo like me, is that Rojo's inactive and McKinnon's the clear third. They're, they go with CEH and they go with Pacheco. And that might be the most likely outcome. But one of McKinnon or Rojo is going to be active. And so even if it is Rojo who's inactive, there's this possibility that McKinnon's more involved than people realize and he's he's running the majority of the routes right away. Great would be a great sign for McKinnon. There's also the possibility that Rojo is active on game day in week one. And if, you know, CEH and Pacheco even get the first couple carries, they're not running particularly well. They go to Rojo, say, in the second quarter. And if he's a little bit more effective, they, I've argued there's still a lot on the table for Rojo. The upside scenario for him is still he's active week one and, and winds up getting 10 or 12 carries because he's the most effective runner in the first half. And they kind of lean on him in the second half. And people are like, oh, yeah, this is why people were taking Rojo in the 10th round earlier this offseason. So really late in a in in a format where you want to get early information and then you can cut him if you know he's inactive and not playing and, and you don't want to mess with it for a long period of time that's fine you cut it but it makes perfect sense in the the 16 plus round range again there was too much you might think i'm crazy in saying that he could be active in week one probably not you sean but the listeners at the same time i would say that everyone was certain he would get cut up until he didn't get cut right <laughs> like well, I just I really want to see him run in the real environment. Yeah. I want to see him run when the starting receivers are out there. Patrick Mahomes is out there. Defenses are dropping back 20 yards to keep the receivers in front of them. And they're saying, show us you can run. The Chiefs have the real scheme in and are calling plays to try and score points. How does he run in that environment? Because you think about what he's done to this point, and it just seems like he gives them so much more than the rest of the guys do but again i mean that's coming from two people who want that to be the case so you have to take that into account definite bias here but yeah any i you asked me a pretty innocuous question and i i made it a very long <laughs> rojo discussion but no i think he's a great fit i think prn's a great fit you mentioned one other player and yet we only have the three non-qb picks we've only taken everett we've talked about john talked about Trey McBride, I'd be very comfortable taking both. They are both still there. Austin Hooper still there. I'd be very comfortable getting, making this a three tight end build is what I'm saying. Kind of interesting with the eight receivers. We ended up going two QBs. We only have four running backs as well, one tight end. Three picks left. Maybe we don't have enough flexibility to make this a three tight end build, which would only give us five running backs week one. Of course, you and I are both very comfortable with that. But with the running backs that we like still being there, it might make sense to get the sixth running back and only two tight ends. How do you see us uh, from a – and Austin Hooper does go – from a positional allocation standpoint? Oh, Ty Chandler was the other one that we wanted to tack onto this build. How do you see us finishing this out as we're one pick away? Yeah, I was going to make another little pitch there for Hooper because I think it's actually a good hedge on Burks, a player we don't – actually need to be that dynamic in the first half of the season on this particular team but he does go uh yeah i just i want four guys because i want those two tight ends i want the two running backs there's that tiny little bit of regret about taking the qb since there will be qb options on waivers i don't think it was the wrong choice but you look at the positional allocations you were just talking about it's a little tricky i mean johnny and mcbride have have lasted so and I think at least one of them will last. And someone like Hayden Hurst, you, you can never go wrong getting a little bit more exposure to that Bengals passing offense. We're probably off of Hurst in part because we just want it to be so heavy to Chase and Higgins. 
I would be pretty comfortable going with both P. Ryan and Jones here, given what could happen in the first week of the season that made them, you know, like 17 rounds more expensive. Not 17 rounds. We're in the 17th round, like 14 rounds more expensive. Yeah, let's do it. I, I think that's I think that's uh, very straightforward. I love that. Uh, again, P. Ryan's a guy that I have an, a gross amount of exposure to in my main events. I pretty much try to talk everyone into at this range. So I was so excited to hear you mention his name. And then I just said, about 15 minutes worth of stuff on on why I think Ronald Jones at 17 on still makes sense. So I'm very much in lockstep with you. I think that does a lot to complete our running back build. McCaffrey, Penny, Moster, again, a little bit of injury concern there. Probably the right move to get to six running backs. P. Ryan and Jones, guys, that we think people could – that there are there – are, Better scenarios than ADP suggests that people could view extremely differently after week one or after week two, very early into the season, to where people in, in casual leagues are bidding on these guys big time. And thus, they make a lot of sense to be adding back here as our, you know, one of the things we talk about with churning the rosters, you want to make a lot of bets. These are our first bets for these roster spots. We might cut these guys by week two, but they are our first bets and they are good bets for week one and week two. And then Abdullah is the other one we mixed in there. It gives us some floor and stability. If both Piran and Jones miss, if we're not able to hit stuff on the waiver wire, if most are Penny and McCaffrey don't all stay particularly healthy, we can you know, lean on a little bit of stability from Abdullah. That's the idea. That's the kind of texture and mix that you know, maybe we don't talk about enough on the show. I get a lot of questions about it, Sean, so I just wanted to emphasize like that's the idea of the backfield here. We went for as much upside as possible. We do recognize that there's some injury risks with guys like Penny and Moster. That's what the Abdullah pick addresses. P. Ryan and Jones address more upside that we might need later in the year if a Penny or Moster issue crops up in week five or six. Maybe by that point, Jones or P. Ryan look like very startable options. Again, that would require certain scenarios to play out. That's the texture you're trying to get in your running back room. I really like what we were able to do there. The big trade-off is we only have Jared, Gerald Everett at tight end. We waited there, very confident in him. Probably want to get another guy there. Yeah, when you have the overall tight end four, though, you don't need to worry <laughs> about it that much. You did a great job of breaking down what we're looking for at the running back position. The thing that I'm always encouraging drafters to do is to look for sort of multiple characteristics from these guys late you're looking for that combination of some type of high value touch and athleticism or you're looking for that combination of undervalued talent and offense obviously p ryan and jones we think that they fit that undervalued talents offenses where if you're the starting running back it's almost impossible not to score points p ryan i think has more standalone value than people are realizing at that at this yeah juncture i mean chris evans we really like and if we at some point in the season made a 600 dollar bid on evans that wouldn't surprise me at all looking at the situation right now he's kind of played himself out of the mix for being the rb2 at least that's what it looks like in which case ben i mean p ryan in round 16 i like that a lot better than jamal williams in round 12 a lot better than alexander madison in round 10 a lot better than Khalil exactly. herbert in around 11 a lot better than jeff wilson in round 12 a lot better than the you can do this unfortunate thing that happened with bryant robinson in round 13 i'm not saying that those are bad guys and it's not something where you're like crowing about oh we got a better value in round 16 than someone got in round 12. i mean in many ways those are very equivalent rounds and picks in terms of what we're expecting to have happen 
but there is every little edge that you can add up and that you can build onto your team potentially does matter. I think that a few of those draft picks, if the drafters had maybe been looking at how, what actually has to play out, they might've made slightly different picks or we could be wrong. We're wrong all the time. Now we just have to, to hit on that absolute superstar tight end here in round 18 through 20. I love what you just said about looking for multiple characteristics. That's a, a Siegelism that I, I don't know if I've ever internalized. Or I was going to say, I don't know if I've ever heard, but I, I'm sure you've said it before that in somewhere that I should have heard it or read it. I don't know if I've ever internalized it, but I love that. That's that's putting it incredibly well because it's not just, oh, this guy's a great handcuff or whatever. And I mean, that's probably part of why you weren't a stoke on Jalen Moore and the offense isn't even that great. It's not the, the other thing I would add with like a P Ryan is he looks comfortably like the handcuff we're not great at predicting handcuffs right but we want to try i think and uh warren looks like it as well in pittsburgh but i would say i'm less sure of it based on everything we know right it, it, yeah i mean that could be a tyson kind of thing from last year i don't yeah. know if right and and you know that situation last year could have been more on the ravens than it was on the back but it, it's a pretty fragile situation and, and warren feels like a guy who almost certainly gets cut after week one it almost certainly will cut somebody. So, I mean, Ronald Jones may be an almost certain cut. It's not that our pick is better necessarily, but just kind of thinking through what would potentially happen. Yeah. And I, I, was just I think gonna, that there would have to be a, a committee backfield there if Najee Harris gets hurt. Yeah. That's probably a fair look at it. But yeah, I loved that comment about the multiple characteristics. And I was just going to kind of throw in that I think this idea of, you know, how certain we feel that this player is the handcuff is part of it. Right. And, and should be part of it. I mean, you named a lot of guys that go higher. The guy that I've compared Pirine to is Rashad white, who I really, really like, but I'm not even that certain that Rashad white would be the clear guy. If Fournette got hurt, we take a lot of Rashad white, but I would, I've been saying basically white Pirine are, are sort of the two favorite kind of pure handcuffs might have a little bit of standalone value too, that we're not really aware of two of the guys that I get in a lot, a lot of leagues. And so they've been, conjoined in my mind in some ways but but even p ryan I, I would say i feel even more confident is probably the number two right now or, or would get a lot of work in the case of a mixing injury it's just an, another interesting way to add to those multiple elements you're looking at and, and obviously other elements with p ryan he's probably good he's in a good offense like you were saying there's these various things that that make him a good pick I like to think that he's over there, like whispering in the running back coach's ear. He's like, you know, I was as good as Joe Mixon at Oklahoma, right? I mean, we were there together. <laughs> I was just as good. I love it. So, Sean, Cameron Brake's the only tight end that has gone since our last pick. We still have Johnny and Trey McBride on the board. Hooper went, Ingram went, Robert Tunyon eventually went back, you know, in 1502 after I think I had thrown his name out there. Uh, Logan Thomas went. We will have to take a kicker or a defense here, and then we'll take the other at 2012. Unless we want to go kick our defense on this turn and then try to get our tight end at 2012. Seems like an unnecessary risk probably at this point. Who do you like more straight up with this Everett team, Janu or Trey McBride? It's hard for me not to say Trey McBride because he seems like the player who could be the league winner. I was going to, I think we should take Harrison Bucker here. Yeah. But I just I was, looked over to, to the kickers and D's and added Bucker to our queue. 
You don't usually get Harrison Bucker because we, we always wait, but five kickers have gone. No one's taken Bucker. We might as well might as well get the Chiefs kicker, right? Yeah. That's a pretty good offense. So we'll make that our pick. And then it kind of as we're using a little bit of our double time here. The Broncos play Seattle in week one. That would be a possibility. We've been taking some Titans because they have the Giants in week one. We have the Ravens here. They have the Jets in week one. The Broncos often go early. I have not gotten them yet. They also get the Texans in week two at home. Feels like a really nice one-two step there. Bucker, we auto-drafted there. Do you want to take the Broncos? And they they always go off pretty early. I'm actually really interested to see them here after 60s have gone. I've seen them go as early as the, the first or second defense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Johnu and, and Trey McBride, well, we're headed to the very last pick. But those guys are not guaranteed to go. They don't go in every draft, so there are possibilities to make it back to us. And it's a question of if we didn't get either one of them, are we comfortable to just taking Ty Chandler and yeah, and seeing how it works out? Yeah, because we're going to play Everett in week one anyway, and, and we can see what, what happens with tight end. Let's do it. I, I like this idea of getting off to the fast start with this, uh, even, even a kicker in D. I haven't gotten a chance to get Bucker or the Denver Broncos yet, but got to feel good about both of those. They even get Trey Lance at home in, in, in week three. Obviously, we love Trey Lance, but some potential for you know interceptions and turnovers there. And if he has a tough first couple of weeks, they might make a lot of sense as a week three start as well. Obviously, the Niners are a little more run heavy, but Seahawks-Texans is a pretty tough first two weeks to beat for the way that we like to, you know, we'll, we'll probably wind up cutting them before we play them against the Niners. But we, we tend to stream defenses in basically every league. It just gives us one less thing to worry about in weeks one or two. We're just going to play the Broncos two weeks. So that was fun. That was a little bit exciting. We also had the the moment there where we did time out because we had moved Butker to the top. And then you're worried had, that you're gonna auto pick your second pick, right? Right. We were put on auto. And in that one second where it's like a dead moment before the next one comes up, that I was able to click turn us I, back off of auto. So, I saw it and clicked it too. We both got a little quiet. Okay, okay. <laughs> so one of us was able to defeat the the dual filibuster there the potential consequences of taking johnny which obviously would have been fine that was one of our picks we were looking at too um yeah so now we have two rounds to wait and see if any of these guys come back we should probably put another name or two into the queue i wanted to ask though now that we have a little bit of a break this was uh if we do this as two shows back in the first show you were discussing Chris Godwin. You talked about how his targets per route were up. Mike Evans were down. This has been a situation where with Tom Brady there, it really hasn't looked that great from a route perspective for sort of a route slash target perspective for Evans. It's looked a little better for Godwin, but I also want to mention that Godwin is previously the overall wide receiver too, right? And in that season, he had a profile that was a little bit closer to what we got from Stefan Diggs in 2020, that profile where he's actually getting targets everywhere. He gets all of those just uh, right by the line of scrimmage targets that kind of bail you out from a PPR perspective, pile up the points, but getting a lot of intermediate and downfield targets, Godwin can do everything. 
there's a possibility that if the offense evolves and a few of his right at the line of scrimmage targets are moved downfield, that it could be even a much better overall target profile for him in 2022 once he gets healthy. The flip side of that is that you have this player, you talked about maybe not counting on him weeks, the first four or five weeks. With a player like that who we're just not sure of, there could be, if the player tries to play too early, maybe a little bit of re-injury risk. Because he's so good and the name is so big, you might get pulled into starting him when he, maybe he's not back to 100%. How does that contrast with you with someone like DeAndre Hopkins, where you know you're not going to have him for the six weeks, but you're also not going to play him while he's less than 100% during that stretch because it's obviously not an option. He's not going to get hurt during those six weeks. And when he comes back, he should be DeAndre Hopkins. Now, when you say he should be DeAndre Hopkins, his peripherals were not as good last year before he got hurt either. So just purely looking at the two guys, it may be something where Godwin's profile is better than Hopkins' profile, even though pre-2021, Hopkins was a, a fairly straightforward second-round pick. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you kind of hit on all of that. And it's a great thing because when we were talking about Godwin in the first show, I was thinking about Hopkins and I've taken Hopkins in a couple of mains where I think I have enough wide receiver depth to not have to rely on him for six weeks. I, I guess I'm hoping that Godwin's back and productive earlier than Hopkins is one element of it. Six weeks is a long time, but it's still manageable, but it's half of the regular season. And, and what is a 12 week regular season in this format, Godwin, I'm hoping you know, the week four, week five range, we're actually able to consider starting him. We'll see if that pans out. But uh, to your point, there is some concern that for Godwin, it lingers even longer. And with Hopkins, we know it's six weeks and then he should be fine in week seven. He's healthy, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not an injury. It could be something for Godwin that lingers 10 weeks for all we know. And so I do recognize that there's, you know, the potential that Hopkins actually looks like a better play from a, you know, weight and, weight on a receiver type option but those aren't yeah those aren't the only elements of their profiles is where i was going to go with it and you kind of already said it hopkins 30 years old some potential skill decline stuff last year obviously played hurt you know we talked about that with bateman in the first show as well where sometimes these guys are not as good when they're playing hurt we would kind of expect that and one of the interesting things for hopkins was that his a dot was a lot higher last year his target spot run fell quite a bit they were just kind of using him as a straight line runner because his knee was so bad that he couldn't do a lot of the in and out cuts and, and the shorter targets were just not a part of his profile. It, it's pretty simple to look at it and say the targets per out run fell because it was all downfield stuff and it sort of needed to be. I can definitely see Hopkins be very good this year. It's just an element where, okay, what if Hopkins wasn't suspended? Where does he go? I don't think he goes in the second round again this year. I think he's more of like a fourth or a fifth round pick, right? Where was he going before the suspension was announced? I don't even know if he was going that high yet. For Godwin at 26, you know, again, Hopkins is 30. There's a little bit more of an age cliff concern. Godwin at 26, he's the profile where I'm saying if he was fully healthy, they're both in great offenses, but certainly in the offense that he's in, I think he'd be a second round pick or a third round pick. Um, so some of it is just that, you know, there, I, I think you do give Hopkins a little bit of a nod in terms of certainty of, of health when he gets back and certainty for the length of unusability. There's some uncertainty with Godwin, but I do think it would be a slight disappointment if Godwin wasn't back to, to full health by week seven, when we're expecting Deandre Hopkins to play or he, you know, will return from his injury. And I also think that just purely 
setting aside their absences or their unusable weeks, because for Godwin, it might not be any absence. He might play week one. We're not entirely sure yet. Setting that aside and looking at their profiles as a 26-year-old, as a 30-year-old for Hopkins, you know, potentially more interesting options in the Cardinals passing game actually now than in the Bucks passing game. You can debate that, but I think it's an arguable point that Mike Evans' uh, two-three turn ADP would is, disagree. Is is debating it? Yeah, I don't know if he himself even would, but his yeah. ADP is. <laughs> I think you can argue Godwin has the better path to being the clear number one in his offense. I guess, uh, and that's not to say that Hopkins doesn't. But we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sean, we did make it all the way back. Both of our tight ends made it all the way back to 2012. The gamble paid off. Plus Ty Chandler. Plus Ty Chandler. It's all you. I'm leaving this entirely on you. If you want Ty Chandler, now that we talked about him so much, let's take him. I mean, Trey McBride's going to hit. Trey McBride's going to hit. He's going to be big. Yeah, I love it. I'm glad to get another share of McBride. I have more of Jonu. That's the way it goes. But yeah, to wrap up the Godwin-Hopkins stuff, does that, do you sort of, I mean, I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. Do you agree, I guess, or or do you see it as Hopkins' upside in 2022 when he comes back on a weekly basis is essentially comparable to Godwin's when he's fully healthy? One of the reasons that I am not getting quite as much of either of these offenses as I would like in a vacuum is that I do think that Rondell Moore and Trey McBride are bigger threats than they're being given credit for. I definitely think that Julio Jones is a bigger threat than he's being credit given credit for. It sounds like Russell Gage is finally back to practice, and now he's very inexpensive because he missed so much time and because they have those three other guys, but they were raving about him before that happened. For the same reason that, that I am not in on Mike Evans at the 2-3 turn, I think it would be tough to call Chris Godwin a clear-cut second-round pick. I do think he probably slides in just ahead 
of the Keenan Allen, Cortland Sutton, Mike Williams range. I mean, if you compare those two offenses, how they're going to work, Chris Godwin, a better player at this point than Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, but those two guys, maybe in a similarly sized volume offense, maybe this is the year where you see a, a real gap start to develop between Herbert and Brady in terms of what they can do for the receivers. So maybe even though Allen and Williams are not at the same level, that that's one where you would want to prioritize the volume a little bit, just because, I mean, Julio Jones and, and Russell Gage, that's just nothing to ignore. I mean, you can't ignore those guys when you're trying to draft Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. I think that's the problem for me looking at Godwin is that I don't want to burn that roster spot if those other three guys are all good because then even kind of once he works back in, it's not that there isn't still some weekly ceiling and some year-long ceiling, but we also don't necessarily want to be in a situation where we're not sure which guys we could start. If the if the Bucks end up having these weekly rotations to where, I mean, Mike Evans already is almost a touchdown guy. I mean, you hear people talk about well, you can't draft this tight end to be a flex player or that tight end to be a flex player or, you know, all these tight ends aren't playable. I mean, most of the tight ends are not playable, but it's not just because, you know, you're looking at them as only TD options. I mean, there's a receiver going in round two who is playable when he scores a touchdown. And so that part of it has made it difficult for me. I want to get shares of those guys, and I do have a few but when they're going where Rashad Bateman and DK Metcalf and Darnell Mooney and Marquise Brown are going, I guess I don't have enough gap to wait. Since those guys are young, have some upside. You know, Metcalf and Mooney, those are plays that are probably not nearly as exciting. And yet, if you do want to make that combination of elite talent and volume play, the price you're getting on on those two guys is pretty silly, right? And I very much understand why drafters want the elite quarterbacks. I mean, last year, again, you don't ever get a clearer contrast in any one year between the haves and the have-nots than you get with what happened with Cooper Cup and what happened with DJ Moore and Terry McLaurin, right? And so with drafters prioritizing the quarterback play, that makes sense. But some of these young talents are also at prices to where any mistake that the community is making on the caliber of the offense or the caliber of the quarterback, and suddenly those become big win guys. I like that a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would, I think I have Metcalf right there. I'd push back a little bit on Mooney probably, but all in the same tier for me. I think your Godwin stance is defensible for sure. And I have plenty of him, so we don't have to worry about drafting him in our leagues together that, that most of us are, are, are ahead of us still here. Cause I do think that makes sense. I like to keep flickering. So I might go off the air here in a minute, but uh, as, as, as it relates to Godwin, I do stand behind this argument that you, you're saying you don't necessarily want to wait because the gap's not big enough. I, I think it is. I, I think you might be right that maybe he would go more in the DJ Moore range. It's interesting. Mike Evans went 2-11 in this draft. If Chris Godwin was healthy, I do think he would go ahead of Evans. Evans would probably go in the fourth or fifth. And and maybe. that part of it has made Evans so undraftable to me all offseason because how do you 
how do you take him when Godwin could be healthy based on all the reports by like week three? I mean, certainly by like week five is what I'm what I'm sort of talking about targeting, thinking of it as giving up the first four weeks to, to be a little bit more careful. But if Godwin's good to go by like week three, Mike Evans is dusted at a two eleven price. Well, this is apples and oranges because Juju Smith-Schuster has not been healthy for a while. You've got to really reach back to find the last time that he was dynamic, anything like a Chris Godwin. But in this stretch where perhaps he is healthy for a moment, and obviously he's just coming off of a couple of weeks or a week and a half, 10 days, something to that effect of mispractice with knee swelling. But I mean, his ADP or you know, definitely where we're seeing him go in drafts over the last week has jumped back up into that Jalen Waddle, Deontay Johnson range. He gets to catch passes from Patrick Mahomes. And I don't think that he has the same competition yet that Godwin has in Chris and Mike Evans and Julio Jones. I don't really have any of him because of the injury situation and because you do have to reach back to find the last time that he was dynamic enough to justify a, a position there. And you know, you get that sky more option at the eight nine turn for example i think you have to take that when you're looking about late in the season but are, are you surprised by where he's going do you think he's a similar thesis at all it's similar but again i mean i guess i'm i'm viewing the yeah it's just it's it's again sort of what you said uh, juju being a guy you have to reach back for a little bit further i mean to go back to when juju was last effective what was that 2018? I mean, you, you mentioned Godwin had the overall wide receiver two season at one point. Juju was a top 10 receiver in 2018. Godwin's wide receiver two season was 2019. He only played 12 games in 2020, but averaged 16 points per game that year. Had that massive playoff game. And yeah. And then was wide receiver 13 last year in 14 games. I mean, I think this guy's like a wide receiver one when he's healthy. Oh, you're, you're looking at Godwin again. Yeah. No, I mean, nothing that significant has happened to Godwin since he was the wide receiver too, other than switching from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady, which has been a pretty clear drop for both him and Evans. Right. And I think that because the bucks throw so many passes that the way that it's been not great for the two of them, especially when Brady has insisted on bringing in Antonio Brown and insisted on bringing in Julio Jones, that has to factor into the price a little bit. Uh, and, but like you're saying, I mean, I think that Godwin, I don't would think be it's the person been as who could justify. Yeah. But I don't think it's been as justify. clear of a drop as you said, I guess. So, so 2019 with Jameis, he's a wide receiver two. He's 19.6 PPR points per game. Obviously he was a wide receiver two overall. There's going to be some drop. He was 17.6 last year at 14 games. He actually caught 12 more balls. Definitely didn't have the same profile as you talked about. His, his yards per reception were four yards lower. I mean, a lot lower. Some of that, though, was just that he had nine touchdowns that year, and, and some of that ties into the the higher dot. Only had five. He actually had six last year because he had a rushing TD as well. But, yeah, and even in 2020, he only played 12 games. He was at 15.9. I mean, he's now had two years with Brady where he's been at basically at 16 and 17 and a half points per game. That really good year, 19 and a half. That's a drop, but. Well, I mean, you look at some of the things like in, in the range of outcomes tool, for example. I mean, those are those are big drops. Um, you can replace a, a 16 point per game guy, a 19 point per game guy. So difficult. Now, some of that drop is just that 
it's hard to sustain 19 points per game. Right. That's no. sort of what I'm it, saying. You'd already expect him to be at like 18, right? He's not going to be the wide receiver two necessarily at, at any price. But there were profile elements, I guess, is my point for both of those guys in terms of where they're being targeted. It's significantly worse. Now, in the same way that you're going to get the regression kind of big picture, you would need to be in an environment like they were in with Winston, where you're trailing a lot, you're aggressively passing down the field, that type of thing. It's just going to be hard to sustain across seasons regardless, too. Yeah, this is a fun one, because, and I'm glad we've taken a lot of time talking about it because I know you really like Godwin as a player, and you've made that very clear to me over the years as well. I'm looking back to 2020 because I know he had some various injury issues. He had three different stints of inactivity. He missed week two, came back week three, missed week four and five, came back week six and seven, missed week eight. Don't really remember the specifics particularly well, but you know, with him only playing 12 games that year, that's when he had the 16 points per game. Last year, he was more at 17 and a half. I guess my argument is more that the 17 and a half isn't as big of a drop off. Last year had 500 yard games. Uh, I mean, you put in, uh, you, t- you talk about those missed games as well. And Tom Brady has thrown him into the line of fire with a lot of the targets. I mean, he's got a, gotten a lot of targets just in general, which every time that you're targeted, you have increased injury risk over place where you're not targeted, obviously. But I mean, he's taken some massive hits on some of these underneath balls that, that Brady has set him up for. Yeah, that's fair. And maybe that's part of the reason that he's missed some time. And maybe that's something I should be more concerned about as well. Very interesting discussion on him. And I love that you tied him to DeAndre Hopkins because I think that's exactly right in the way that I uh, was thinking about it when we were talking about him initially. I am very glad that we got Bateman, especially because we wound up getting London, Burks, Wilson, Dub, Dobbs. Bateman gives us a clear week one starter with the way that the Ravens are looking like they're going to probably pass. More than whatever they settle into later in the year, they will pass more early because uh, of the the running back stuff with Dobbins and everything else. A lot of teams pass more early, but I I do think there's some possibility the Ravens still settle into a pretty run-heavy lean at some point mid-season, late season. But Bateman, Judy, Tyreek Hill, A.J. Brown, our first four receivers – will almost certainly be in our lineup together in week one. And then we still have Drake London, Traylon Burks, Garrett Wilson, Romeo Dobbs behind them. It, that Bateman pick frees you up to make those other picks. Cause I think if you take Godwin, you're probably, you, we might've still taken all the rookies, but you're, you're maybe a little bit more concerned about projecting some early season pro- production out of the rest of your receiver group. We'll almost certainly get some from somewhere in that group. I think you you mentioned there's a positive note on Traylon Burks recently. Romeo Dobbs might play more early than people expect. Garrett Wilson, I mean, I don't even understand his price because he's probably going to play plenty in week one as well as a top 10 pick. Munden, really just a health issue. I mean, all four of them might play a decent amount in week one. Maybe not a huge concern, but I do think we have our sort of straightforward week one starters at receiver, and then we see what happens with the rookies. It is good not to need London in week one because that one is starting to look a little bit more tenuous. Yeah. I I mean, if Garrett Wilson goes for 150 and two in week one, would that be some kind of shocking development? It it could possibly be. He was the 10th overall pick again. Like it wouldn't be surprising at all. We have McCaffrey and Penny pretty straightforward running back starts in week one, just sort of to recap our whole team. The rest of our running back build, Raheem Mostert, Amir Abdullah, Samaj, P. Ryan, Ronald Jones. We talked through that a little bit. 
and how we like that texture. Jalen Hurts and we took Justin Fields were our two quarterbacks, Gerald Everett and then Trey McBride with that very last pick, our two tight ends, and then an elite kicker and defense combo in Harrison Bucker and the Denver Broncos defense. A really, really, really fun team out of the 101, Sean. You, you mentioned early on, I think probably on our first show, that it's kind of hard not to draft a team that you really like out of the 101. You get so many options at the 2-3 turn. You get a lot of options at 4, 5, 6, 7. Obviously, everyone's going to like their own team. We say that every time we review our own teams. Hard not to like it, and and still I love this team even more than I would have envisioned I might have loved it. It's just so much fun to draft with you and so much fun, again, like you said, to draft out of the 101. The area of the draft that we keep coming back to where it makes a bigger difference than the first round and it's say, how can it be a bigger difference than getting to draft Christian McCaffrey? But at the 4-5 turn, you have so many options. But once you get to the 5-6 turn, it is a wasteland. Now, it, it, we had like four guys we wanted to pick with every selection. So obviously, when you're at the 5-6 turn, you can just take one of those guys. But when you're looking at also kind of getting the value that you need to stick with teams who were drafting in the first half, it is rough, right? We get Rashad Bateman. We discussed you know, why we actually took Brees Hall and J.K. Dobbins at the 5-6 in one of our drafts, which was an unusual draft. But you look at this draft, and the players who go in the last four picks of round five are A.J. Dillon, Dalton Schultz, Dallas Goddard, and Damian Pierce. I'm wrong about stuff all the time, but that is incredibly disheartening if you're drafting in that range. That That's your fifth-round pick. And then Chase Edmonds, Elijah Moore, Justin Herbert, and Cam Akers, the first four picks in round six. I mean, Chase Edmonds might be in a pure committee with a player that we drafted in round 13. It might not. I mean, we hope. We hope that he is, but he, I mean, he could be. He's probably at least the 55-45 guy, maybe the 60-40, maybe 65-35. But man, at the 601, it's... Yeah, it's rough. Elijah Moore is sort of the one saving grace there, but then you go through the rest of the sixth. Adam Thielen and Christian Kirk were the only other two receivers until we took Drake London at six twelve. And and so you're talking about how the early drafters get this advantage at the four five, and then at the five six, the late drafters have to make decisions on players that the early drafters are going to have available to them at the six seven as well. Exactly, because the best players available at the five six turn have a late seventh round ADP. Right. Devonta so. Smith winds up going 7-10. Brandon Ayuk winds up going 8-04. And those are the receivers we would consider at 5-6, yeah, along with London. And it may be that some of these veterans mix in a little better than we're giving them credit for. DeAndre Hopkins goes at the 7-12. We like him. Adam Thielen goes in the middle of 6. He could have a 15-touchdown season. Christian Kirk, I've said, is undervalued, but not undervalued. I don't think at the 609. Let's see where he's gone in the last handful of days. So he's gone at the 612. I, I don't think he's undervalued there. He is a, a solid pick in that range. If the Jaguars take a step forward, he could be a solid selection. Hunter Renfro, we like him. Mean, he could be Wes Welker. It's just it we don't make that pick, but if he's Wes Welker, that doesn't surprise me at all. Amari Cooper could be a volume-based wide receiver one. Kadarius Tony, if he stays healthy, could be like a third round value. So again, it's not that there are no ways for those players to work out, but, but we are still more excited about the seventh round guys, which just again underlines 
that you need to have a plan if you're drafting from the back four picks. You need to know what you want to do there. You probably don't want to just chase points or take a compromise selection. Maybe you need to reach by ADP. There are still good players available in the draft, big picture, but you don't want to compound the disadvantage of you know not being able to get McCaffrey Taylor or one of these star wide receivers by just not getting any upside at the five six. Yep. And and to just hammer home that point you're making, I mean, all of those receivers, fine receivers, Elijah Moore, Devonta Smith, Brandon Ayuk, good upside profiles that we like. There's a tier break between what we got at four or five, Jerry Judy, Rashad Bateman, and the conversation we were having about Chris Godwin and DK Metcalf and Darnell Mooney and Marquise Brown all of whom were available to us. Brown's a guy we didn't mention. We did have in our queue with that 4-5 turn. I think he's very viable there as well. All of those other receivers that we had available to us at 4-5 were gone by 5-0-7. They typically go pretty quick into the fifth round because you're talking about the area where drafters very clearly have recognized the dead zone and are not hammering running backs anymore. Zeke Elliott did go 5-0-2. David Montgomery went 5-0-3. Brees Hall falls all the way to 508. AJ Dillon is, is at 509. And, and you were talking about Damian Pierce and Chase Edmonds at 512 and 601. Marquise Brown and DK Metcalf and Godwin are, are for the most part, those guys are going to be going off the board before, you know, even the Damian Pierce drafter decides to make that decision or Chase Edmonds goes off. And so there's really not a lot of ways from a math perspective that enough players can go ahead of any of those guys to push them to the 5-6 turn. And you get that fall off where you're not going to get Godwin falling there. You're not going to get Marquise Brown falling there. But you do get those options at 4-5 because, again, from a math perspective, enough running backs have to have gone by then. We talked about how Zeke at 502 was actually a little later than we've seen him. I've seen Damian Pierce in the third round. But even if those guys don't go before you at the 4-5 turn, the only running backs who had gone were there were 16 backs straight through to you know ETN and Nick Chubb. And, and James Conner had all gone. But the, the guys that always go right? And the five tight ends had gone, but if Waller or Kittle didn't go, that's another option that you get then at the four or five turn that they're, they're, they're fine values there. If you didn't get a tight end at the two, three, which you typically are not going to be able to, they're, they make a lot of sense for the early draft slots at the four or five when they make it all the way back there. There's really no way, again, looking at it from like a math-based perspective of how many picks have to go, that the four five turn doesn't leave you with plenty of receiver options and the six seven, uh, five six just doesn't leave you any of them. So I think that's a great point. There's just a lock to be a teardrop there in the fifth round. And then in terms of how teams played this draft, we had a pretty stark contrast between the running back heavy teams in three, arguably four, but definitely seven, eight, and 10 versus the more wide receiver heavy teams in terms of our start where we had just one running back in the first eight team two goes wide receiver times four to start team five has wide receiver times four with kyle pitts in there in the second round a dream start if you'll ever see one there with chase pitts higgins juju and dk metcalf i might have pulled the trigger on marquise brown in round five but metcalf obviously a superstar to be getting at that price and then they get some fun upside running backs i mean Ramondre. Stevenson in round six is a little pricey, but he does give you the upside that you're excited about. And they also are the ones who scoop up the value on J.K. Dobbins. And then out of the nine slot, we get a team with Stephon Diggs, Mark Andrews, Cortland Sutton, Amon Ross, St. Brown. That again, a dream start through four. 
a similar to the situation with Stevenson, I think that AJ Dillon in the fifth is very pricey, but if he turned out to be like the overall running back three from midseason on, that wouldn't surprise anybody. Kind of straightforward how that would happen. Cam Akers in six, and then back with Amari Cooper and Brandon Ayuk in seven and eight. We also then have Alvin Kamara rising all the way up into the first round and an anchor running back build for a team that goes CeeDee Lamb, Mike Williams, Terry McLaurin, Dallas Goddard, Elijah Moore, and Kadarius Tony. <laughs> McLaurin, not exactly our guy, although it's always possible he comes back. Dallas Goddard, a potential upside play. I mean, there's a chance that you and I are wrong. Jalen Hurts breaks out, but it's not A.J. Brown. It's Dallas Goddard who benefits. I really like the blend of youth and upside of Lamb, Williams, Elijah Moore, and Kadarius Tony. Tony, very much a lottery ticket. And a pricey lottery ticket, but someone who could be a second round pick next year. So if it plays, if it pans out, it pays off big. And then some really good upside names at running back to continue that draft. Quite a few teams in here that will put up a significant battle. And I should point out the team in six actually just has the one running back early. That team goes Travis Kelsey, Aaron Jones, DJ Moore, Brandon Cooks, Darnell Mooney, and Patrick Mahomes. A fun mix of players there. You and I inadvertently auto-picked Aaron Jones on one of our underdog teams. And so if Wix's Wizards win this league, then perhaps that underdog lineup will do well. It will. Those are some fun teams that you mentioned. I kind of want to just go back to like, you really opened my eyes to how big of a teardrop there is in the fifth round. We've talked about the third round being a pretty big teardrop as well. The early third can be so advantageous. A lot of the receivers fall off by the late third. I think the one saving grace you can get in the late third these days, or there's a few, there's a few interesting names at three, four, but Gabe Davis, who's risen a ton, I still think is a guy that you have to love taking at the three, four turn. But the first round also has the big teardrop. So it's just, it just re, it's, I don't know. The second round doesn't seem like it has such a big drop off from the front to the back. The fourth maybe does as well when you talk about the Gabe Davises, Mike Williams, Amon Ross, Jalen Waddles, Deontay Johnsons at the 3 4 turn that don't make it back to 4 5. But we did get Judy to fall all the way back to us in this draft. If Judy goes and you get into Bateman, Godwin, and the other guys we talked about that were fifth-round receivers in this draft, that does feel like a little drop-off in the fourth that is a benefit to the late drafters. If you get Elijah Moore at the 5-6, you're maybe getting a little benefit in the sixth. Although, of course, I, I, I don't see a huge difference between Elijah Moore and where we got Drake London at the end of the sixth round. I mean, there's a difference probably, but I don't know if it's massive. Drake London also a guy who can be a superstar. The early drafters get so much of an advantage in one, three, and five and and you think about it in terms of pairs of rounds the first round's more important than the second the third's more important than the fourth and on and on but there's not even an advantage really in two four and six not not nearly as comparable to one three and five which are the more important three rounds of you know of those two trios it's nice to have the one-on-one that you know we're really kind of just breaking that down and, and certainly feel fortunate to have that it's a lot tougher you understand why people drafting in the back third are taking some stands in some spots, going after guys that they're really buying into, and whether that be the Damian Pierce pick or what have you, it's guys that, you know, like like we said, John, we're maybe not on, but you got to make up the ground somewhere. And so you have to be an aggressive drafter from back there. And so definitely have a lot of respect for, for that in, in, in the situations that, um, we see that those types of picks and those types of 
decisions. It, it's such a tough riddle to crack from that back third spot. Yeah, it, it is. And I think that the number one thing you probably have to do, and I'm sure that some of the listeners on other main event teams are, are clipping this to, to play later when it doesn't work out, but I, I think you have to select Kyle Pitts as part of that. That's the only way that you have access to the type of upside that balances it. I, I shouldn't say that. I, the, the good part about being there is that you can take your guys out of this interesting mix of players from the 107 to the 206. If Derek, I mean, Derek Henry is now often in the second round, CD lamb, Devonte Adams, Mark Andrews was the biggest winner of last season, you know, outside of perhaps cup, but even sometimes with him there, he's in that range. We love Javante Williams. It is something where I don't think that we lose a lot taking AJ Brown and Tyreek Hill, but for the drafters who are in the back half, You've got to, as you just said, you've got to have some flag plant players that you think can destroy the league in the one, two range, in that range in the first and second round. You've got to get your guys and you need those guys to really blow up in order to keep pace. Absolutely. I love that point about Pitts. I mean, it, it really does. Tight end is the position. We talked about this early in the offseason. It's tough at running back. It's tough at receiver to see how you match the upside of the early guys. Tight end's a position where, I mean, I've been higher on Kelsey than you throughout, but there's just fewer names, right? Kelsey's the only guy, and Andrews and Pitts are the only guys, right? At running back, you need both Taylor and McCaffrey to fail at receiver. You need all three of Jefferson, Cup, and Chase to fail. If you're taking Pitts at the one-two or Andrews, one of those two, whoever your you know your flavor is, obviously we both prefer Pitts. But if you're taking one of them and they hit their ceiling outcome, really all you need is Kelsey to have some issues, whatever they may be. You've detailed some of the ways that that could happen, even with health for him. And then you have the clear tight end one, you know, that it's a combination. It's, it's you're hitting and Kelsey is failing if you will. But um, there are not a lot of other players in that position that have the ceiling. Obviously Waller and Kittle do too. Maybe some of the other guys in the next groupings do, but I think of a lot of the guys after Kittle as having upside to be like tight end five or tight end three, but not necessarily tight end one. If Pitts or Andrews hits their ceiling, I don't know how Dallas Goddard or TJ Hawkinson gets there. Again, you can clip that for me later, but I don't think that's going to happen. And that's part of the reason I'm not taking a lot of Schultz and Goddard and Hawkinson. You can see it with Waller and Kittle, but I just don't think it's particularly likely. So well, the one thing point, that happened here too, Sorry, it's just that the Travis Kelsey drafter got a little bit unlucky because when they took Kelsey at the 106, they can't have believed there was any possibility that Kyle Pitts would come to them at the 207. I, I have to believe that if they had it to do again, they would go Eckler or Pitts instead of Kelsey, Aaron Jones. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny that we're saying that now that, that Pitts falling to 208 was a shock. And it is a shock. We, we can't get him to fall to 203 when we're drafting 110. We've We've... Last time we drafted 110, we were expecting to take him at 203 and, and have Andrews in our back pocket because Pitts does go ahead of Andrews now quite often. And they went to the 11 and 12 drafters on the turn, and we didn't get an opportunity at 203 to take either of those tight ends. That's when we ended up with that robust running back build because at 5'6", we had to take – you know, we felt that the, our best option was to take Brees Hall and J.K. Dobbins. Obviously, Dobbins has fallen even more now since then, and, and maybe in hindsight – was the wrong pick there. I've not seen Hall fall much further than that 5'10". That was just like a 
you, you get an opportunity to draft Brees Hall at 5'10", you kind of have to take it type of situation. But he gets vaguely close in this one. He gets to the 5.08. It, Pitts does have an ADP specifically in main events of the 2.06 in the last three days. So obviously this isn't the only draft that's happened if he's getting into that range. But we'd love to see it happen a little bit more in the drafts that we are in. We're taking him pretty early. We've been early in the offseason. We saw him get back towards the 101 quite a bit and get to that 2-3 turn. He's certainly risen. And, and to your point, I mean, even if you're not at the turn at 11 or 12, I mean, I had a draft at the 109, and we had decided we were going to go Pitts or Andrews there. Interestingly enough, Kelsey fell all the way there. So we started with Kelsey. It was a perfect outcome in a scenario where we were like, we're going to take our elite tight end in the first round and make sure we get that. Because waiting for 204 and hoping that Pitts or Andrews comes back is a sweat. It changes your whole draft just because you're like, okay, I wanted to take Barkley instead of whoever your you know, round two running back might be, Javante Williams or whoever, that's a pretty big drop-off probably from Barkley to Williams, but it's not the drop-off that getting a tight end in your first two picks versus not getting a tight end in your first two picks does to your whole build. So locking in that elite tight end, even at 109. And Sean, we've basically been saying this all year. I, that's back when we were talking about Pitts being incredibly high. When I When I – Originally did my rankings and had Pitts third. I, I had mentioned everywhere that it was mostly related to ADP because you could still get Pitts so late. But in, when we talked about it, it was it was my opinion that Andrew should also be a first-round pick. You you have been ranking him at like sixth overall for a while now, which is um, just fantastic and probably right. But basically the way we've been putting it as much as we could over the last couple of months is that all three of those tight ends deserve to be first-round picks in tight end premium pretty clearly because of what they can provide to you when you're drafting from those back slots, I think there's an argument they should be the 106, 107, 108 before Eckler. You know, your mileage may vary on that. But even in PPR leagues, I think the advantage that they can provide over the position this year is enough that I still see people tell me they, they can get Kyle Pitts in the fourth round. And I'm just like, man, I don't play fantasy football like that anymore, but <laughs> it seems fun. <laughs> It does. There are so many good formats, so many good leagues. It is important to defeat your coworkers, to defeat your college buddies. We hope that the content is good for that as well. Ben, this has been so much fun. That'll do it for this special FFPC main event draft edition. You have so many time periods that you can jump into the FFPC main event. It does have a $1 million grand prize this year obviously there are individual league prizes as well there'll be drafts going off friday and saturday after the first thursday night game those drafts can be some of the most fun you'll have all year after you've had that first taste on thursday night and then you're kind of reclining back into the couch the easy chair the recliner for your friday and saturday entertainment getting some college football in doing a main event draft is the best way to get ready for sunday morning we'll be doing some of those we hope you guys join us i'm sean siegel with me as always is ben gretch and follow at yards per gretch make sure you get signed up for stealing signals make sure you get signed up for stealing lines i'm pretty excited for that this year ben so many exploitable opportunities with props and that type of element you're going to have dalton cates working on some of those with you make your money back very quickly there we'd love to have everyone join us at rotoviz we have a 10 percent discount for anybody using the coupon code rv radio 2022 at checkout dave Cabin launching even some more tools 
that will give you just an insane amount of information as you want to look at how teams are playing out any given week. That'll be fantastic for both redraft and for DFS. Jump in with us at FFPC. Subscribe to the feed. Leave us a rating and review. I can't thank everyone enough for the ratings that you've left over the last couple of weeks. We'll have some more content as we head into the season here. Can't wait for the regular season. We'll talk to you guys soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.